We have the privilege of hearing George Quillen again today. I ran into an old friend, John McGoffin, and I asked, how's, how's the preaching been going? And John said, well, this guy named George Quillen's been filling in for me. So George has been busy preaching the word, apparently. So, George, do you want to come on up? I pray for you before we start. Father, just use, use George as he speaks your word. And, and I just pray that we use, use the word we hear and apply it to our lives and bring glory to you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. It goes to show you never know who. Who folks know. Right? Yes, God blessed with a month of Sundays. That was a treat. It's a privilege to be back with you, dear Dear believers, it's always an honor to be here. In Psalm 134, we read, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles and join me this morning in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 1 for some context, but we'll be focusing on verses 7 through 11 this morning. Speaking to the theme of God's discipline for our righteousness. Let's begin with our text. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews author began our chapter with the reaffirmation of Jesus as the sole foundation for our faith. Yes, we heard 
Yes, we believed. Yes, we are in Christ. Amen. However, Jesus Christ himself is the object, the foundation, the basis for our salvation, for our having been reconciled to God. Christ himself, the cornerstone, and the perfecter or the refiner of our faith. We're then reminded of his sufferings as the basis or the means of our being able to endure affliction. We understand from Galatians 4, 4 and 5, that through Jesus we've been adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters. And so he blesses us with full rights of family membership. And Ephesians 1, 5 reminds us that our adoption in Christ was in fact God's eternal purpose for us. Now in our text this morning, we see part of what that sonship or daughtership in Christ leads us to, and that is to discipline. Discipline need not be a corrective action for bad behavior. We understand that it's used in the New Testament to refer to training. Really, Paul speaks of this in some pretty graphic languages at times, doesn't he? Well, notice verses 7 and 8. We should not read verse 7 apart from verses 3 and 4. Notice again. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And now seven and eight. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Considering Christ as we suffer, and at times that may be a bit strong language, but considering Christ as we suffer keeps us from, well, self-pity, self-absorption. Why me? Woe is me. It helps us draw strength from his suffering. Now, when we see in verse three, uh, verse four, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. We're, of course, pointed back to the garden where Christ prayed right before his crucifixion. This does not minimize our own troubles. It doesn't minimize our own personal suffering at all. I believe what it's doing is it's pointing us back to Christ. The whole purpose, the whole Focus, the scope of scripture is to speak to the person of Christ himself. It exalts Christ such that at his name, at the end, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. And so what we experience is not about us. It does refine us. It does make us more fit for the life to which God has called us. However, the point is still Christ. We are to make much of Christ. Preach Christ, teach Christ, sing Christ, pray Christ, study Christ, speak Christ at every corner to make much of him. May he increase and we decrease, right? That's the point. And so even in our suffering, it's not for us to sit there in self-absorption, but to look to Christ. If he can suffer to that degree and still look to the Father for strength and purpose, so can we. 
in our lesser sufferings. Well, this text appeals, among many others, but to at least Proverbs 19:18, which reminds us, discipline your son for there is hope. It's God's fatherly purpose in his discipline of us that makes endurance both possible and an obligation. It's expected in Scripture that God's people will grow in grace, that we will grow in our understanding of the Lord, for Scripture does instruct us. Yes, grow in our affection for Christ, absolutely, it's, but it's somewhat inevitable that the greater we grow in our understanding of who the Lord is, we will also grow in our affection for him to result in loving service. But you'll recall mentioned earlier, the discipline is not always a corrective action for misbehavior. Sometimes it's simply training. You'll recall in Timothy, Paul speaks of this, why the scripture was given, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. This includes all of his children. Notice Isaiah 48, verse 10. Isaiah 48, 10 tells us, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. It was considered earlier why it is. That peace among the brothers is so important. And we were reminded several reasons, one of which being that the way we interact with one another is a distinct reflection to a watching world of the state of our reconciliation before God. Because, of course, if any man be in Christ, Paul tells us he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If, in fact, the new has come, then the old way of living is entirely out of place, isn't it? We have been called for peace. Now, this this idea of peace is profound in Scripture. But we understand that peace must not be divorced from truth. Yes, let's get along. But let's also have our peace, our unity together on the basis of God's truth. Not peace at every cost. So much as it rests with you, yes, be at peace with all men. However, we must be true to the Lord and to the infallible word he has gifted to us. And so the way that we live displays to a watching world, for those among them who care, our true standing before the Lord. Because, in fact, if God is peace and our Savior is the Prince of Peace, then to be in Christ calls us to reflect that and live a life of peace before men. Such Paul calls us to when he says that we are to live quiet and peaceable lives before our neighbors. And of course we would if we're to love our neighbors ourselves. Sometimes God refines us not for actions done wrongly, but sometimes just to grow us up. Just as we expect our young people to mature, it's the inevitable end is that childhood will result in manhood, womanhood. So it is in the faith. We should grow up in the faith. It's not natural for God's people to stay spiritual infants. 
everyone is not going to be a seminary theologian. But we should all increase in our understanding of Scripture. Jesus himself said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Know you. Yes, intimate knowledge, but also to know facts about God. And of course, that should make us make a beeline for Scripture. It should lead us directly there. Perkins concluded that our adoption teaches us to pray as children toward their father with reverence, humility, repentance, and a sincere desire to mortify sin or to put it to death. That's old language. This affliction that God sometimes brings to us. It's discipline. How many among us truly crave serious exercise? Some have discovered that it's a marvelous thing and they just live for it. They're the oddities among us. But many of us may desire the outcome of exercise. We just don't wish to engage in it. Feels good afterwards, but it's the getting there that's hard. We laugh because we know it's true. Real life is most amusing. But I know that to be the case myself. I don't desire exercise, and so it generally doesn't happen. That's discipline. Disciplining or training ourselves for righteousness. Isn't that what we're called to? That takes some careful, deliberate work on our part. We don't put the Bible under our pillow and wake up with an increased knowledge of Christ. We have to put that material there. This comes through deliberate training. And God sometimes brings some affliction to our lives to spur us on to that. So what is it then that we're to endure? Well, sometimes we bring trouble on ourselves and we should be disciplined for that. Dennis Johnson writes, in the Greco-Roman world, it was not unusual for a nobleman to subject his legitimate son and heir to a rigorous upbringing under the severe tutelage of a guardian. Since the future of the father's name and estate would rest with the son. We see this example in Galatians 4. To be spared God's painful discipline is indicative not of his favor, but of his indifference and rejection. And of course, we learn that to spare the rod, so to speak is not to show love or favor to the children, but to really doom them. It's to spoil them. That's really an understatement, isn't it? It seems backwards, particularly today, I suppose, but to deny discipline to our children is really not a gesture of love, but, well, let's use the strong word, a gesture of hatred, because we don't care how they turn out. It's hard to discipline. Who among us enjoys it? But to quietly and patiently bear affliction is itself already evidence that God is giving a grace which only his children know. This is also the kind of grace, by the way, which before his crucifixion, Jesus could pray, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Is that your experience when something very trying happens? It's well and good that we pray, Lord, would you take this away? Would you heal me? Or would you heal so-and-so? There's nothing at all wrong with that. 
We are to pray for one another and to well wish one another. But to go one step further, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. It might be God's will that Uncle Frank is laid up on his back for a season. Just one example I recall was a man who became a very fervent evangelist. But prior to that, he had been a very successful salesman, successful to the degree that he was not willing to entertain giving up that life for something other than and in a boating accident was laid up for a very long time. And it left him not only crippled, but less one leg. And it took laying him up on his back like that with his face up to God to get him exactly where he belonged to begin with. God brought the man some affliction for his greater good. You'll recall our praying basically the same thing in Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is perfectly done in heaven. And yet, we don't see quite the same thing here on earth, where the world at large gladly thumbs its nose in God's face. Is this your spirit towards God's will, too? That if he would spare us affliction, he would, but either way, that his will would be done? That's where his discipline should eventually lead us. Notice verses 9 and 10. Besides this. We've had our earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, that is our human fathers, for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. You'll recall elsewhere in Hebrews, we read about that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If we are to stand savingly, appropriately before the Lord God, our Father, we must be holy. Apparently, he has the bigger view and picture here as he addresses us throughout our time here. When we recognize how God's painful discipline reveals his loving acceptance and our legitimacy as his children and heirs, this perspective will affect our attitude toward him amid our afflictions. Notice a few places. Ephesians. Pardon me, Philippians 2.14, I'm sorry. Philippians 2.14. Makes a difference. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling 
you'll recall in Scripture when it exhorts us to do something naturally, we don't want to do it. We probably won't do it on our own. We have to be reminded to do these things. And when it says don't do this, we're generally given to doing it. So recall Paul's exhortation here. Do all things without grumbling or questioning or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And then notice chapter four. Verses four through seven. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it may be easy to glibly respond. Yeah, a lot. You know, you don't know what I'm going through. Rejoice. Are you kidding me? I'm lucky just to get up in the morning. This man is as qualified as anybody to say this. Read up on the life of Paul and discover what this man endured for Christ and for the message of hope that he brings to people. This wasn't a cakewalk for Paul. God uniquely equipped this man to be able to speak these things he experienced. In our same chapter. Notice verses 5b and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. When a son realizes that his father's discipline is because of his love for him and his desire for his well-being, this should lead the son to love and respect his father, that this discipline, this is truly discipline. It's not punishment. There's a difference. And we do well to distinguish between the two. Punishment is truly punitive. It's it brings a very swift, sharp response to the action done. But discipline is to train. It's to emphasize what was done was wrong. Don't repeat it. It is to train so that that one will not repeat that wrong, but will instead choose the right next time. The former may be swift and decisive, but the latter should be distinctly out of love. It is very easy to react out of anger. I think we all understand this. Parents are uniquely poised to be a distinct reflection of God before their children. And so we have a tremendous responsibility to reflect that loving discipline of God to our children. And I don't know about you, but I, for one, know what it's like to fail miserably 
at that and to be overly harsh. No show of hands, but has this been your experience? This idea of respect here literally means to be humbled or to humble oneself. We are humbled before the Lord God when we understand. We understand. Well enough, anyway, who he really is. And that makes patently clear who we really are. That we're not all that in a bag of chips. God really is supreme. He's majestic. Think of these attributes that we understand about God. Omnipotent. Omniscient. All-knowing. Omnipresent. Everywhere. Equally present. Immense. He can't be contained. He's majestic. He's just. He's holy. He is perfect. Completely separate from everything else. We read in Hebrews that the Lord our God is a consuming fire. That should petrify the unbeliever. And yet for those who are in Christ, those who have been reconciled to God, we understand that the Lord is good, truly good, loving. And he is our refuge. That's what we see in Nahum 1. He's our refuge. Picture this mighty fortress that we sing about from Luther. We're safe there and nobody can bust that door down. He holds you in his hand, Jesus says, and no one can pry you out of his fingers. That should comfort the believer that even though God disciplines the one that he loves, he's holding you tightly and there's no way you can get out. That's what Christ is trying to emphasize. He says, I hold you in my hand. And then he says, the father holds you in his hand. And then Paul reminds us in Romans Who shall separate us from the love of God? Implied answer? Absolutely no one. Nobody can. Not even you. Well, the motivation for us to live a holy life is that Christ is in us. He is holy. He is God. And there is no higher motivation than precisely that. And we read in here, in verse 10, that he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness that helps us to understand a little bit better what we read in Peter that as he who called you is holy so you must be holy in all your conduct why would a loving God discipline his children so severely at times he does it so that we may share his holiness for without that holiness No one will see the Lord. He's drawing us into his fatherly presence by engraving his image upon us, even through the strokes of a rod. Beaky says, view your sufferings as your training for holiness. Submit to the rod of the father, trusting in his goodness and love revealed at the cross. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Notice this. 10 verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which 
that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I expect that if we could visibly see Jesus walking by our side moment by moment, our confidence level would dramatically increase. Mine would. But the simple fact of the matter is, biblically speaking, he already is. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we've just read, he who promised is faithful. In other words, he keeps his word. He says he's going to do it. He's going to do it. And matter of fact, he already is doing it. He is with us every single moment. You'll recall when he said, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. You can't go there right now. But when I do go, I will send another comforter, the paraclete, parakletos, means comforter, one who goes alongside of. Notice the language. I'll send you another one who is the first one, but Christ himself. He is our peace. Consider that with Paul's frequent usage of the little phrase that we are in Christ, in Christ, read his letters and you'll see it constantly in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. There's a point to that. In this text we saw in Hebrews 10, it's exampling God beckoning us to his presence. He doesn't just leave an open invitation there. He's calling us to approach him. Historically speaking, you don't go before a king without his deliberate invitation or you're inviting death. Esther knew this. But he's beckoning us because of who Jesus is to us. Notice in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 through 26. Speaking of Christ, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost Not part of the way, not most of the way, but to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. Remember that in Christ, through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This is the priest who makes our access to God (laughs) supremely possible. Christ. And that's why we have an audience with God. He hears us. That's why he's qualified to merit our invitation to approach the Father. Praise his name. Every Lord's Day to be a worship celebration, isn't it? Because of Jesus, we have access to the Father. You'll recall, I am the way. John fourteen six, right? You know this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's profound, dear believer. Praise his name for having been sent for you. For you. 
And that's why we have the privilege, the blessed responsibility every single Sunday, at least, to come together and to praise his name through prayer, through song, through study, through conversation. May our conversation together be sweet, upbuilding, a blessing that when we leave each other, we leave each other better, closer to Christ than when we met. William Grinnell says it best. Here's a good word picture. God would not rub so hard if it were not to fetch out the dirt that is ingrained in his child's natures. God loves purity so well he'd rather see a hole than a spot in his child's garments. That's pretty good. That was 400 years ago. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I've never spanked my son and had him thank me for it. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Has this been your experience to spank your child and then turn around and hug you? May that be. They need comfort. And may we remind them that this is not done out of anger towards them, but out of love for them. We love them enough to correct them. And we still accept them. They're still our children. We're not driving them away. And that hug to comfort them and us, I suspect. We're still okay. We're still okay. I still love you. It's painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now we understand that in Christ... We are regarded by God the Father as righteous. Because, of course, at salvation we've received the righteousness of Christ. That's what Paul labors to tell us. He was raised for our righteousness. It's not our own. We read in the Old Testament that all of our works of righteousness, our works of righteousness, are like filthy rags. If our best, our very best, is like a filthy rag before God, what do we have to offer? We need righteousness, but it can't come from us. Well, praise be to God, he's provided that too. Christ was raised for our righteousness. Similar to our text in 2 Corinthians 2, 3, Paul wrote expressing his hope that when he came, he would not suffer pain from those who should have made him rejoice. However, verse 11 concludes with the purpose of the affliction or the discipline. That it should later yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. This is why we distinguish between punishment and discipline. And scripture speaks profusely to both. It speaks of God punishing the unrighteous. Here are many you may wish to write down rather than try looking them up. Matthew twenty five forty six. This is just a sampling. Matthew twenty five forty six, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Second Thessalonians one nine, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Second Peter two nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until, until the day of judgment. 
In Jude 1.7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Repeatedly in Scripture, we read God's response to the godless, the unrighteous, as being punishment. What they deserve, but it's punishment. Likewise, Scripture speaks frequently of God disciplining his own. Proverbs 3.11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Revelation three nineteen, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. You'll recall God all the way back in early in Genesis speaking to uh, Cain. Cain had killed Abel. He was furious over God having accepted the one sacrificed and refused his own. And God, you'll recall, counseled him. Why is your face downcast? Basically, in modern speak, if you do right, won't things go well for you? And of course, the counsel was refused. This discipline is to point us back in the right direction. Sort of like watching your child head out to the street and take the head, you turn it, and then they start going the right way, right out of the street. God's discipline to turn us from the wrong direction to the right. Note again the goal of God's discipline as being the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We are already declared to be righteous in Christ. So let's live righteously. We're declared to be the uh, holy priesthood. So we're exhorted to be holy in all our conduct. Righteousness is not just a standing before God. It's to lead to something. And here we see that one of those somethings is the peaceful fruit of it. Well, our mind immediately makes a beeline for the fruit of the spirit. And it's right that it should. In James three seventeen and 18, we read, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown. In peace by those who make peace. Would that be a description of us? Would we seek to make peace? Look at the harvest that's to come from those who do this. This reminds us of Second Timothy 2, 2, where Paul urges us to lead a quiet and a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the truly wise person will be a peacemaker. And leave a legacy of righteousness, righteous behavior and influence. Let us view God's rod of affliction as writing Christ's image more fully upon us so that we may be partakers of his righteousness and holiness. It's one thing to have a status. It's another to live out the implication of that. Clyde Cranford said this. 
the motivation for discipline is love. And the purpose is correction and instruction. God disciplines with a father's love. His discipline shapes and molds us, bringing us into submission to his will, conformity to his mind, and oneness with his heart. Our lives thus reflect a union with him, the essence of which is holiness. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Would you seek that? Recall Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Oh, how God wields the divine scalpel of his word, cutting away the cancer of sin. To summarize, Johnson concludes, in every generation, Christians face opposition that works against lifelong perseverance in following Jesus. Sometimes the hostility of sinners is expressed verbally and socially. Sometimes matters escalate to financial hardship, physical harm, imprisonment, and even death. But God gives us strong reasons to run with endurance the faith laid out in front of us, some of which... The abundant testimony of those who ran ahead of us. The courageous example and loving self-sacrifice of faith's founder and perfecter, Jesus. Greater love has no one that he lay down his life for his friends. Behold, I've called you friends. And the Father's encouragement that our present pains as we struggle to hold fast to faith signal his loving acceptance and fit his flawless plan for our eternal well-being. Looking to Jesus and recalling our Father's encouragement, supply the stamina to run the race to the finish line. May that be our testimony. Let's pray. Father, you're gracious and patient and you're kind. And even when our own behavior calls for it, thank you, Father, for your loving discipline of us. And when we've not done wrong, I thank you that you send us others to speak your truth and love to us, to train us in righteousness. Characterize the congregation, Father, by a loving resignation to you, knowing that it is by your good, sovereign hand that you bring affliction and you bring comfort. That each one of us, Lord, in Christ would gladly yield to you with our requests being made. Nevertheless, your will be done. May there be a pronounced sense of peace, grace, and mercy among us as we would seek to live our life before your face. To be pleasing to you, a blessing to each other, and a godly example before those whom we live. We love you, Lord, though imperfectly. We would seek to praise you in all that we do, though sometimes we lack. I thank you that you are long-suffering towards us. Forgive us for where we have sinned against you, Father, and one another, where we have neglected to do what is right. 
Make us clean again from all unrighteousness. Able vessels, fit servants, upon whom you would gladly delight to smile. Make us useful for Christ's sake. Amen.